Check, check, one, two, testing, one, two, check, one, two, three. And welcome to the program. Welcome to the transmission. My name is John Dale, broadcasting from the corner of Canyon and Jackson and Sunny Spear for South Dakota. It is actually sunny today. It's the last sunny day we'll have for a little while. Got some yard work to do today. Found me some good roof polymer for the old sheds. I like to put layer upon layer on that until over time it becomes strong and virtually impervious to even big hailstones. No other roofing material, just Maybe a little bit of luck, and layer after layer, diligence over time. That's how we win against the hail. I'd like to say thank you to a friend of the family, Mr. Fritz. Appreciate your contributions to the shit show. No, it's not really a shit show. It's actually pretty good, isn't it? But when we say it like that, it makes us seem kind of more humble. And we are. We are humble. But also very good at what we do. That's the difference between, I guess, arrogance and confidence or something like that. When you know you're good at something, and you say you're good at something, it's not arrogance. As far as I understand, that's not arrogance. But if you're not good at something... And you go around tooting your own horn, that's when you get in trouble. 
haven't done a big picture for a little while, and uh, they've been queuing up. But I try to select the information for the big picture based on whether or not it will transcend the time, whether it will still be relevant, interesting, and useful years and years from now. And so this isn't a news cycle program. A lot of people look at this show and they're like, wow, John, you don't do a show every single day. I mean, to get good, relevant information, enough of it to do a show every day, much less uh, like a 24-hour news cycle, you got to, there's no way, there's just not enough information, in my opinion, to be able to do that. You got to either repeat stuff over and over, or you got to go find a bunch of stuff that's not newsworthy because you just want to keep people's attention. I found people tend to appreciate it when we're not barraging them constantly with a show that they feel like they've got to, they're going to miss something if they don't tune in. Try to curate the information I put on here so that it transcends the time. Not all of it hits the mark, but I always try. And we usually make pretty good shots. It'll transcend the time, so it'll still be interesting and relevant, even if you don't get it out today. And I don't have to go 24-hour news cycle status. Certainly, that's tough. And I don't have to do like a four-hour program every day like Alex Jones. That's what gives you your life back. If we had that value and that ethic across the board in our quote-unquote journalism, I think we'd be better off. That's my opinion. That's my philosophy. That's how I run the program. I didn't come by that opinion lightly. I had to work for that to get that conviction. I had to convince myself that that was the right path. You don't just wake up and have that kind of dedication one day. You actually have to do the mental work to be able to have adherence to a principle like that. This is Spear for City Limits, a production of Plainstribune.com. Again, this is your host, John Dale. I've started to call it the Spearfish City Limits Project. It's been going for, I suppose, about eight years now, maybe more. The Spearfish City Limits Project has been going for about eight years. Started off as just going out to the local bars and talking to people, but talking to them with intention, not with an agenda but with intention to make real human connections, person after person, standing up for myself and my beliefs, not denigrating others in the process, respecting that everybody has their own life path. Life is precious. Life is special. Listening to people, really listening, whether they're playing a weird instrument at an open mic or whether they just needed to talk about something that was on their mind or whether they have a a serious question about something I've said or done really listening to what it is that they're criticizing or commenting on and then offering a thoughtful response. That's basically the Spear for City Limits project is just being a free and aging human being exercising First Amendment right. The First Amendment doesn't guarantee, I think, everything. If you incite a riot and it's your responsibility and you've just used your words, Some people make that argument that you're not responsible for the damage. I think maybe you got to be a little more careful than that. But I suppose if you say some things and then other people take action based on it, the actions are on them too. This is a a very difficult issue. So I want to make sure that I'm being responsible with my speech, even though I think you're responsible for your actions regardless of what I say. I'm a practical person. What you hear on this program is oftentimes conjecture. It's analysis, 
I try not to do predictions. But make sure that you're thoughtful and deliberative and you go seek other sources before you take any kind of action at all based on what you hear here. It is your responsibility to make sure that that action is justified and legal. My preference would be that it's peaceful and that you understand this corrupt system enough to be able to operate within it to change it so that it's not so corrupt, as opposed to doing other things that are ultra-violent, dangerous. Self-defense is a right. Violence is not a right. So there's conjecture, there's opinion on this program, there's analysis. I don't put this up there as the gospel. But it is almost like a university course where the stuff that you do here is curated and it's well thought out. So that there's a good chance it's going to be right, like we were on many issues over time. Freedom of expression in music. You have to let the music and the art reflect the culture accurately if you want to make a true change in the culture. If you're not doing that, then you're sweeping the underbelly. You're sweeping the nasty aspects of our community's culture under the rug and not addressing it. That's not good. So when people hear a weird original song, for instance, by a local musician, and it's something that's dark, they tend to censor that person and not give them the microphone as opposed to really listening and appreciating that as a reflection of something that's real. And when you hate on the song or the piece of artwork and say that piece of artwork or that song is bad, and then you ignore the thing that that song is a reflection of, then you've done a great disservice to our community and you've squelched an opportunity for us all to get better and repair something that we ought to probably repair that we're embarrassed about. So the freedom and expression in art is the precursor. It's the beachhead. It's the reconnaissance to making our community more sensible, safer, more respect-worthy, as opposed to sweeping things under the rug because eventually you run out of room under there. You get dust and rocks and dog hair. You run out of room under there eventually. You can't sweep it all under the rug and Somebody's going to go and eventually find all of that and the truth will be exposed. And when that does happen, you hope when they lift the rug up that there isn't too much gunk under there. Unfortunately, the Spearfish City Limits project is a bit of a rug lifter. Unfortunate for the people who do not want that information out and don't understand that basic principle that you have to face up to a deficiency to be able to fix it. I feel sad for those people in a constant state of fear that they're going to be discovered looking over their shoulder, spinning webs of lies, and literally hurting, terrorizing, and torturing families economically by denying the opportunity for a local musician to do his job. And his job or her job is to reflect the community, good and bad. If you let the musicians go and we find all of these deficiencies and address them, what you start to see then is a prettier picture in the artistic expression coming out of your community. The songs get better from that perspective. What I mean by better is they start to reflect something more positive in nature that makes us feel good about ourselves, and it's warranted. It's merit. It's earned. It's not 
whitewashed and fascist and communistic in its control. That's my opinion. And I know that a lot of you out there feel the same. Probably the majority of you out there are not rug sweepers. You want to have the time and opportunity and resources to dig in and fix things the right way. I know that that's an underlying ethic here. And it takes a lot of money and resources for a small group of people to keep rug sweeping. That's the tragic part. If that rug sweeping budget were redirected into a repair budget, we would have a lot less conflict and hate and bad feelings and ill will in our community. That's what the Spearfish City Limits Project is about. One of the features that we came up with was the big picture. Where did the big picture come from? Some people want to know how did you get that name? Well, the big picture as a concept has been around for a long time. 30,000 foot view, the big picture. There's a lot of ways to refer to it. I was applying for a job a while back. I've applied for well over 200 jobs since I've been in Spearfish. I was applying for a job a while back. And in the interview, it was a telephone interview first. The person who is giving the interview said, we're not interested in someone who is looking at the big picture. We're interested in someone who could keep their head down and just do the job. And the job was internet marketing. So they didn't want someone thinking about the importance and ethics of privacy, for instance, how we conduct our marketing efforts. They weren't interested in ensuring that those efforts were conducted with love and respect and reverence for the people who pay us money and allow our business to thrive. They wanted someone who would just cut it and bleed it. And that was so off-putting to me that that's when the big picture was born. The big picture of internet information systems is, yes, on one hand, we're in a war. We're prosecuting a war on several fronts right now. And so information systems, surveillance, and reconnaissance is used as a tool to try to find the bad guys. Unfortunately, the Office of Personnel Management Toolkit is out in the wild and other versions of it. So now not just law enforcement has these tools. That was always the problem. That was always the warning coming from the good guys like me. You can't just keep these tools locked up and safe. They'll eventually get out and be misused. And now they're misused on a wide scale. It's insane. That's the big picture. And so the way that you take that territory back is one business at a time. Does the diligent hard and risky work of figuring out how to do marketing, for instance, without fundamentally disrespecting every one of your customers by using the tools that, say, Google has provided, Facebook has provided, TikTok, and so on. I didn't get that job, but it was a good interview, and and I said, You know, I tend to focus on big picture issues. I do have a Master of Science in MIS. That stands for Management Information Systems. It's basically business computing and the process of using computers to accomplish 
mission objectives for businesses, whether that's marketing or supply chain management, logistics. So I'm a walking big picture of how to apply computers to business, but I'm not supposed to think of the big picture. I'm supposed to just ignore that. (laughs) I also have a degree in philosophy. That's the study of ethics, epistemology, truth, and God. The history of human intellectualism. That degree helped me become a proficient and prolific computer programmer because it's the study of logic. And ethics. Ethics can be logically construed. This is something that seems to be, for some reason, off-putting to many Christians and other religious people. The notion that you could behave morally without some kind of external control. You can discover morality inside of yourself and use that to guide your actions all by yourself. I mean, obviously your parents made you and, you know, there was a company that manufactured the baby formula and the fact that the sun is the right distance from the earth. There are a lot of contributing factors to be able to do this. Granted. But you don't necessarily need an organized religion to be a moral person. That's called, can you believe that that's actually called Luciferian and Satanic by some people? Part of it has to do with the Satanic temples usurping of scientific principles and calling them their own, which I think is a dark Christian psyop. What I mean by dark Christian, I don't mean dark in their color, but there are some segments of Christianity that have used the church for evil purposes, and we can all agree on that. Those folks, I think, launched that union between the satanic temple and scientific principles to discredit scientific principles so that they could try to have a monopoly on morality. Because when morality starts coming from outside of a person, it creates this mechanism where you can install any system of morality that you want to in a particular person. So if you're evil and you want people to be evil, you can change the information that is put into a person's morality through that mechanism. So in my view, that mechanism is fundamentally and inherently evil and dangerous. My recommendation is that everybody craft dutifully and do the hard work, honestly, of learning basic fundamental logic. Because I think you'll come to the same conclusions that I did. The most important of those is that is the golden rule, essentially. Life is precious and life is special. You have a responsibility to understand how your actions affect other people. And if I don't have to worry about you stabbing me in the back and you don't have to worry about me stabbing you in the back, then we can go about our work building beautiful things like Jeeps and guns, growing corn crops and organic food, bicycles, automobile repair, if we don't have to worry about constantly defending ourselves. This is the fundamental principle, I think, that was discovered by the ancient Greeks that is carried forward. If we don't have to worry about one another, then we can have way more fun building beautiful things. This is very ethical and very moral, and it's logically supported. Is this the American religion? Well, it came from the ancient Greeks. But 2 plus 2 equals 4, regardless of who discovered it. It's a fundamental principle that exists independent 
of whoever might be contemplating it or writing it down or discovering it. It's not owned by the ancient Greeks. Perhaps they were the first ones to shed light on it or write it down. And thanks to them for that. Because I think that if we understand this core principle, we have a chance. It starts at the grassroots. It starts with the Spearfish City Limits Project. Thank you for your support. Now would be a great time to make a contribution. If you go to plainstribune.com, at the right-hand side of the site, you'll see there's a tip jar that goes to PayPal. If you'd like to drop us a check, you can do that as well. Send it to John Dale, 239 West Jackson Boulevard, Spearfish, South Dakota, 57783. Either of those mechanisms works just fine. But we sure could use your support. It can be very difficult when you're operating from a big picture and one of true morality and ethics to make a living in this world where it seems like the unethical people have all the money. And they use it to ensure that ethics don't take hold. So please go there right now. Make a contribution. If it's a dollar, great. If it's a $1,000, that would be wonderful. Now would be a great time to do it. Let me tell you. This seems to be some kind of an apex or a pinnacle in terms of the attacks on ethics and morality by whomever. And so make sure that you support individually programs like this one. Thank you so much to everyone who has already contributed, and there have been quite a few. Thank you very much. We've been at this eight years, and it's prob- I'm probably making maybe uh, a, a ten-thousandth of a cent an hour for the work that I put into this program over those eight years. And so we've had to try to scrape and claw and scratch to survive. And it would be great if the value you get out of this program, if you understand this stuff and if it makes sense to you, and it gives you a good direction, it would be good to return that to this operation because we sure could use it, especially right now. Thank you. So let's get into the big picture. This was originally scheduled to air 725, so a couple months ago. This is the big picture. Smoking mRNA gun. Greenlight Biosciences is developing an RNA-based syrup to attack Veramites, a parasite that attaches itself to honeybees and feeds off them while spreading diseases. The RNA acts as an off switch that interferes with the mites, disrupting their ability to lay offspring that attach to bees, said Mark Singleton, chief commercial officer and general manager of the plant health at the Boston-based firm. Greenlight Biosciences. Now, the reason I put this in the big picture is because there were people who doubted that this technology was efficacious and real. The genetic exploitation and manipulation of the world around us by crazy scientists is real, it is pervasive, and it's hitting an apex. Moving right along, I wrote a little piece. As you know, I'm a cannabis advocate, and we'll be getting more into this issue as we see it on the ballot again. Uh, This is not my initiative, and... I, I would have written it differently, although I'm seeing it get much closer to what we've got at plainstribune.com slash cc4l. That's Cannabis Consumers for Liberty, cc, the number four, the letter L, where you can see our initiative proposal. You'll see that they're fairly close, but there's some weirdness in this one. It's almost like it was designed to fail, but I'm digressing. I apologize. I support anything 
that moves the needle toward freedom with respect to cannabis because it's been unduly persecuted. It's being lied about. And I think that people, in order to preserve an oligopoly or monopoly on cannabis, don't want it to be free because you can literally just drop a seed and it'll grow and you got cannabis. So it's it has to be, you have to bend over backwards and do some political gymnastics to make sure you can get a monopoly on it, similar to what has happened with water. So this is uh, entitled Deregulate Cannabis Today by John Dale. Now, I haven't read this in a while, <laughs> months, in fact, so I hope it's uh, I hope it's good. We'll see. I think it's a prevailing belief that cannabis is addictive. I'm assuming the dopamine response loop is responsible for much of the addictive and withdrawal symptoms. In my experience, this is categorically false. I think what's needed is more study, since the black market will do anything to keep that competitive advantage. Medical is progress. An event that is slow coming, though. Recently, I had a nice discussion with someone who was of the mind that why would someone ingest something to help them cope or feel better? The Seventh-day Adventists, a hated group on record for some reason, use diet to help them better cope with the world and to feel better. It really works. There's a connection between consumables and a person's sense of well-being and their actual well-being. If cannabis is not addictive, it is not smoked, and helps a person cope physically and mentally with their individualized life circumstances, why would we create a marijuana Gestapo and fund a new wing of state government to prop up an artificial scarcity when it could be grown in the backyard? Decarboxylation of THC in cannabis allows THC to pass the blood-brain barrier. THC stands for tetrahydrocannabinol, and it's one of the essential oils in the cannabis plant. If it's not heated to about 325 degrees, which is the process of decarboxylation, the psychoactive properties of THC do not register in the brain. It's just not passed. So the danger of children going crazy from eating cannabis seems mythical, especially when considering the taste of cannabis. It's disgusting. And to me, it's disgusting. Some people like it. I like the smell of the terpenes, but the taste of cannabis is pretty gross. Kids probably won't naturally eat it twice. And even if they did, if it's not decarboxylated, there aren't any psychoactive, psychoactive properties, and I think their poo would just turn a little green. With the laws the way they are, the black market is tainting the marijuana with God knows what. The black market cross-sells heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, prescription opioids, and booze. And the price paid for cannabis to administer government programs could be used for child support, light bills, rent, self-improvement, travel, or other more noble goals than creating an artificial state-sponsored monopoly. The state of South Dakota would save about $3 million a year on incarceration costs and processing costs, according to the LRC and Attorney General of the state of South Dakota, if we completely deregulated cannabis and large and growing cohorts of would-be farmers would become interested in working the soil. This, to me, is the fascinating aspect. 
We spend about $3 million a year prosecuting people for cannabis. The LRC and Attorney General wrote me a letter personally, John Dale wrote me a letter, and said we'd save $3 million if we didn't incarcerate people for cannabis. And a large and growing cohort of would-be farmers would become more interested in working the soil. I hear a lot of farmers coast-to-coast in South Dakota lamenting the fact that their children don't want to be farmers. A lot of those would come back because they realize cannabis has been demonized irresponsibly and illegitimately. They've tried it. They might come back to farming. The frenzy around the prohibition of cannabis has only benefited the cartels. While the rest of society bears the health, policing, psychological costs of prohibition. The prohibition causes the psychological damage, not the cannabis. Exclusion from good jobs, from your peer groups, causes the psychological distress, not cannabis. This is what our studies confirm. It's what I know personally, anecdotally, from my own experience, how bad I feel when people exclude me from activities for any reason. Cannabis included, my cannabis advocacy included. I think the addictive effects and the DUI issues are overstated. That's my opinion. Very much overstated based on my own personal testing and anecdotal experience. The addictive effects, they're not there. Not like alcohol. You can die coming off of alcohol. It just doesn't happen on cannabis. Yes, it's habit-forming, but a lot of things are habit-forming. Exercise is habit-forming. Fishing is habit-forming. So it's really overstated to say that cannabis is addictive. And then DUI issues. I've seen people sit down, get as stoned as they can possibly get, and exhibit masterful dexterity playing video games, riding BMX bicycles and skateboards, and yes, even driving. The upside of deregulation is quantifiable and palpable. You save a lot of money. It's reducing the friction between cannabis communities and police. The psychological effects of being demonized, demoralized, marginalized are diminished. The most difficult pill to swallow is how to say sorry, though, I think, by the establishment in this system saying sorry to the people whose lives have been laid to ruin for seemingly dubious reasons. How far will prohibitionists go to avoid saying, we were wrong and we're sorry we threw you in a jail cell and ruined your life and your family's life, demonized you to your children, your parents, your uncles, your aunts, your nephews and your nieces? for no good reason. That, to me, is motivation enough to keep going with the prohibition, as I understand it. Moving right along, corn bad for the environment? Corn-based ethanol, which for years has been mixed in huge quantities into gasoline and sold at U.S. pumps, is likely a much bigger contributor to global warming than straight gasoline, according to a study published Monday. And this would have been, you know, a couple months ago. The study published in the Proceedings 
of the National Academy of Sciences contradicts previous research commissioned by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, showing ethanol and other biofuels to be relatively green. The research, which was funded in part by the National Wildlife Federation and U.S. Department of Energy, found that ethanol is likely at least 24% more carbon intensive than gasoline due to emissions resulting from land use changes to grow corn, along with processing and combustion. Under the U.S. Renewable Fuel Standards, a law enacted in 2005, the nation's oil refiners are required to mix some 15 billion gallons of corn-based ethanol into the nation's gasoline annually. The policy was intended to reduce emissions, support farmers, and cut U.S. dependence on energy imports. Recently, I should mention, I had an email exchange with Congressman Dusty Johnson. Good luck in this upcoming election, sir. I appreciate you following up with me on this issue, wherein an article in Reuters regarding this exact topic was retracted. But I think that the jury is still out. And just principally, at a high-level, big-picture type view, while people around the world are starving, the optics of burning our food in our cars is really a detestable vision to me. And the damage that comes from strip mining for batteries versus oil wells makes me believe that fossil fuel vehicles are the way of the future for at least the next hundred years. We haven't even gotten into some of the deep intellectual property in possession of the fossil fuel industry when the supplies actually start to diminish, which is another aspect of this. There seems to be a replenishment and a renewal of fossil fuels. I don't know if that is as fast as we have been using them, but that's an interesting aspect. At one point, there were no fossil fuels located under the surface of the planet. Now there are. How did they get there? How fast did they get there? And what did it take for them to get there? Would human poo and mass turn into gas eventually as an organic material that would be processed slowly? Similar. Would human beings themselves, similar to the way dinosaurs turned into that juice in the first place, organic matter being processed slowly through the surface of the earth? It's a fascinating thing to think about. And it makes me wonder if we ought to be running so whole hog into the electric vehicle space. Maybe all these Teslas could be turned into little mini autonomous tractors that could deliver goods from the freeway to the inner city so that we don't have to have diesel trucks doing deliveries around the inner cities in in and around neighborhoods. Because if we can't charge them with our coal-fired plants or with solar panels that require we strip mine off the coast of Japan then what are we going to do? Again, thanks, Congressman Johnson. I appreciate your following up with that. That's important to me that you're willing to communicate on issues like this that are important to South Dakotans. I wonder if that land was converted somehow to closed environment systems like we can grow food with on Mars if we couldn't feed ourselves. The city of Spearfish just increased its budget by some $24 million. I'm wondering how much of that will be invested in local food. The money that we're sending to the CIA, I mean Ukraine, 
What if that was invested in local food? Isolationism is not inherently bad. It can be. But at certain times in certain industries, it may be something worth exploring. The ability to produce lemons in South Dakota, it is possible with production greenhouses and geothermal energy. Why are we not figuring out how to do that? That's something we could be proud of. Be a lot of hard work intellectually to figure it out and patience and investment. But what are we spending our money on? I see huge cornfields and huge sunflower fields from here to Sioux Falls. And that goes out on the open market. And I wonder how the economy is going to be changing and are we prepared to take advantage of that? How are food systems going to change? How could change? How could we take advantage of that? Does the human body have an optimal formulation like uh one of the cars racing uh, at the Daytona 500. And have we figured out that optimal input into the human body? I think we have. Now it's a question of how do we do it at scale. One solution is to depopulate. Another solution is to figure out how to scale it out and invest our money wisely. I don't feel like we're doing that by sending so much money to the CIA. I mean to Ukraine. Moving right along. Nobody wants this tracking crap from abc.net.au. When we attached tiny backpack-like tracking devices to five Australian magpies for a pilot study, we didn't expect to discover an entirely new social behavior rarely seen in birds. Our goal was to learn more about the movement and social dynamics of these highly intelligent birds and to test these new durable and reusable devices. Instead, the birds outsmarted us. As our new research paper explains, the magpies began showing evidence of cooperative rescue behavior to help each other remove the tracker. While we're familiar with magpies being intelligent and social creatures, this was the first instance we knew of that showed this type of seemingly altruistic behavior, helping one another and helping another member of the group without getting an immediate tangible reward as academic scientists were accustomed to experiments going awry in one way or another, expired substances, failing equipment, contaminated samples, an unplanned power outage. These can all set back months or even years of carefully planned research. For those of us who study animals and especially behavior, unpredictability is part of the job description. This is the reason we often require pilot studies. So how about those magpies? They're smarter than we are, aren't they? I mean, in a way, it, I'm, I guess I'm like this little magpie when I say you should go Google the clipper chip and realize that there's one in every phone. So if you're using like Telegram or something like that or Facebook Messenger, that it doesn't work. Cryptocurrencies, very extremely difficult to keep cryptocurrencies private as per. You still have to trust these conglomerations of exchanges. And your identity can be unmasked. And there's the, there are groups on the planet who already know everything about everybody through these devices. They're little trackers that you have elected to put on yourself, and you pay for it. You're subsidizing your own exploitation with these things. I don't know 
what sound a magpie makes, but I'll just stand to reason it's something like chirp, chirp. Microsoft Planet Scale AI. By the way, you can contribute to this broadcast by going to plainsreview.com, clicking the tip jar, or sending a check to 239 West Jackson Boulevard, Spearview, South Dakota. This is meant to sound much scarier than it is. If it's interfaced with the human brain, maybe we could worry a bit. But really, this is just people burning a shitload of electricity trying to be human-like. Meanwhile, we have 8 billion-plus humans running around being ignored by those wasteful rubes. Microsoft has revealed it operates a planet-scale distributed scheduling service for artificial intelligence workloads that it has mostly dubbed Singularity. You may want to rewind that section. It comes at you pretty fast. The CDC keeping data from the New York Times. For more than a year, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has collected data on hospitalizations for COVID-19 in the United States and broken it down by age, race, and vaccination status. But it has not made most of the information public. Your CDC is a public entity funded by public tax dollars. And it is keeping information from you. It has a revolving door with Big Pharma. So there you go. Moving right along, the United States to end China initiative. This is from technologyreview.com. That probably means it's working. The U.S. Justice Department is ending its controversial China initiative and will pivot to a new strategy. To counter threats from nation states, it announced February 24th. The program began under the Trump administration as an effort to root out economic espionage, but drew criticism for falling short of that stated goal while increasingly focusing on academics and researchers of Chinese descent. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson, in an announcement made during a talk, at the National Security Institute at George Mason University, said that after a review of the program, he has concluded that the China initiative is not the right approach to countering national security threats. Instead, the current threat landscape demands a broader approach. Make no mistake, he says, we'll be relentless in defending our country from China. But our review convinced us that the new approach is needed to tackle the most severe threats. He emphasized his belief that the department's actions were driven by genuine national security concerns, but said that by grouping cases under the China Initiative, the DOG helped create a perception that it treats people with ties to China differently. Instead, he announced a new strategy focused broadly on threats from hostile countries. Olson began a review of the initiative in December, during which he said he heard concerns from the civil rights community about racial bias. He also said he heard concerns from the academic community that prosecutions of researchers for grant fraud and other charges has had a chilling effect. His National Security Division will take supervisor approach to academic integrity and research security prosecutions, but that will not affect pending cases against academics scheduled to go to trial. I'm comfortable with them going forward, he said. So we have about 300,000 communist, well, they're not all communist, Chinese nationals in our universities. I would reckon that most of them have been placed there because they have some use to the Communist Chinese Party. That's the CCP, for those of you who like the acronyms. 300,000. 
academics in our universities. You're wondering what that big sucking sound is. It's U.S. intellectual property going out of our universities into China. Why? Because of H-1B and EB-5 and other programs that sell out United States citizenship and that have left generations X and Y in a lurch. Totally sold us out. After review, I actually like my gas guzzler. This from QZ.com. VW's Golf, compact cars, and ID4 electric crossovers were among the vehicles aboard a ship, according to an internal email last week from the Automakers U.S. Operation. You heard about this already, I'm sure. Headquartered in Wolfsburg, Germany, the group manufactures cars under brands including VW, Porsche, Audi, and Lamborghini, all of which were on the ship. It's not clear if the batteries contributed to the fire starting in the first place. A greasy rag in a lubricant-slicked engine room or a fuel leak are the usual suspects in ship fires, but the batteries are keeping the flames going now. A forensic investigation will take months to determine the cause. Last Saturday, Hao Mendez, captain of the port of Fayal, the nearest Azorian island, told Reuters that the batteries in the ship's cargo are keeping the fire alive. Large quantities of dry chemicals are needed to smother lithium-ion battery fires, which burn hotter and release noxious gases in the process. Pouring water into the Felicity Ace, that's the name of the ship, wouldn't put out a lithium-ion battery fire. He told Reuters an added water weight could make the ship more unstable. Electric vehicle fires are rare, but pose their own kind of flammability risk, and one that becomes heightened as the EVs go mainstream. Large numbers of EVs group together as when they are transported by a cargo ship or electric buses parked in an overnight lot raise the risk that one flaming battery could ignite, could ignite a chain reaction in adjacent batteries. According to a research proposal at the National Academy of Sciences Transportation Research Board, Lithium-ion battery fire risks are currently undermanaged in transit operations. And how? There have been more than 35 large lithium-ion battery fires since 2018, Paul Christensen, an expert in lithium fires, told the Financial Times, including a 13-ton Tesla Megapack storage battery in Victoria, Australia, that burned for three days. An electricity ferry in Norway caught fire in 2019, And in April 2021, a battery fire at a Beijing mall killed two firefighters. In addition, cars carrying ships and ferries can face higher risks from fires, according to insurer Alliance Global, head of marine risk. Due to the internal areas not being divided to make it easier to transport cars, when a fire starts, it can spread more easily. These things burn hot. By the way, I used to work for Pearson, who owns the Financial Times, $8 billion publishing company who was paying... $20 $20 million in two and a half years to build out an education delivery system here in the United States. Now, to start with, it was going to have state-based standards that are United States-derived state-based standards, but anybody who knows anything about databases and systems like this, it's a delivery system and you can change what is delivered. So now we become uh, a woke nation based on the education that's delivered in the classroom And uh, that's Financial Times, interestingly enough. You guys ever watch this show? I think it was called My Name is Earl. What a great show. I love that show. It's pretty funny. Uh, One of those things. It did make fun of the white man, but I believe in equal opportunity uh, sardinism. 
and comedy. And uh, there was a girl on there who is, I think, the girl from Meet Joe Dirt that he thought was his sister and then wasn't. And she used to say, hey, dummy, from nature.com, just one pint of beer or average glass of wine a day may begin to shrink the overall volume of the brain a new study has found. And the damage worsens as the number of daily drinks rises. On average, people at age 50 who drank a pint of beer or six-ounce glass of wine two alcohol units a day in the last month had brains that appeared two years older than those who only drank half of a beer or one unit. According to the study, which published Friday in the Journal of Nature, the brains of people that were of that age who said they drank three alcohol units a day had reductions in both white and gray matter that looked as if they had added three and a half years to the ages of their brains. Right now, I could go buy enough alcohol to kill 100 people at the corner store. Right now, legally. No questions asked. Thank you. Come again. Male biology lesson from KELO, Omaha, Nebraska, from the Associated Press. A Lincoln man has been sentenced to life in prison for the shooting death of his estranged wife's new boyfriend in downtown Omaha. The Omaha World Herald reports 28-year-old Marlon Miranda Jr. was sentenced Thursday to life, plus another 45 to 50 years for a firearms conviction in the June 2020 death of Jose Santos Para Juarez. Police have said Miranda confronted his estranged wife and Juarez at a restaurant during a friend's birthday party and shot Juarez several times at point-blank range in a jealous rage. Miranda was then shot by an off-duty Bellevue police officer as Miranda attacked his wife. Love is serious business, man. If you're stalking some dude's lady, you really need to be careful. This has been The Big Picture, part of the Spearfish City Limits Project. Production of PlainsTribune.com, broadcasting from the corner of Canyon and Jackson in sunny Spearfish, South Dakota. My name is John Dale. Remember, if you get some value out of this, please do go to PlainsTribune.com and click the tip jar or drop us a check or money order in the mail. If you send cash, be advised, you might have to send it twice if you really wanted to get here because you never know what's going to happen with the post office these days. I've had quite a few thumb holes in... InfoWars nutraceutical deliveries to my house. It says free speech systems on there. I had to actually complain to our local postmaster. Wouldn't want me to have free speech. Save us from ourselves. Much love. I'll be back around the bend with some more great content just as soon as I possibly can. Just remember... We distill it down to what we think is really important, and a lot of times we'll wait till something is proved before we'll actually publish it. That, to me, is what differentiates this program from other programs. Makes the information more trustworthy. We're not on a news cycle. But rest assured, the work of distillation is happening, even if you can't see it, at our main tip of the iceberg, plainstribune.com. Have a great day, everyone.
I should mention I played this song and recorded it. It's called Life is a River. And the lead was done on a Charvel Model 7 that I had to sell to pay a bill. Missed that guitar. 